You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. My own experience when it comes to things of the Spirit, and we're going to be talking about particularly spiritual gifts, but really coming up to this whole issue of what, who is the Holy Spirit, what does He do, what should we expect Him to do, what's the nature of living in the Spirit, what, what, is it, what is it like, what should we expect, what, we sh- what, what, what should we, we kind of be warned against, what are the reefs that we need to navigate around as we get into this topic. My, my, own, my own experience of these things is really varied, like I grew up going to this Anglican church, which was, which was both traditional, like robes and different you know, colours for different seasons of the year, candles dog collars, as, and charismatic, like people speaking in tongues and people falling down in the service and healings and, and all these things going on together. And, but then my own family experience was much more conservative than that charismatic experience. So I remember distinctly one morning in church seeing people raising their hands, singing the song. And so I started doing that kind of to mock them because that's who I was. Right, and you just need to know that about me. That's what that was the kid that I was, and um, and so I would do that, and then and then I remember that that Sunday afternoon, my dad really being angry at me, and he was angry at me, yes, because I was mocking, but also because we don't do that, we don't we don't do that when we sing, so we're in this context where the, we, where that was a normal part of church, you know, raising hands, speaking in tongues, praying in tongues, all that stuff, but we don't do that, we. We're more conservative than that. And then I got saved, as many of you know, as a 19-year-old kid in this just chaotic environment of nearly dying and being healed on the spot as someone laid their hands on me and prayed for me, like like an instant relief of all of my symptoms that had put me in hospital. And then this kind of crazy carnage as Satan just broke out and went nuts among uh, among the, the the kind of the kids that we were doing ministry with and they were seeing visions and um, stuff was catching fire and appliances were playing without being plugged in and all this crazy stuff was going on and so I had this charged experience of like manifestation of spiritual stuff the kind of stuff that you go and talk to anyone on the street right now about and they'll be like yeah right um, and then you go to other parts of the world, and they're like, "Yeah, right." Like <laughs> that, that happens every Wednesday, right? So, but but we we come at it from this post Enlightenment Western um, secular humanist point of view, and so it's like, what do we do with this? Some of us experience some of these things, and I, and I I'm, I'll tell you, like for the first year after those experiences, I didn't sleep with the light off because I was terrified of Satan. But within a couple of years after that, I started doubting whether those things actually happened. Because the rational world was starting to, to paint over those experiences, so they became less and less stark, less and less visible. But I had the, these really charged up, like charismatic experiences of healing and miracles and demons and all this stuff. And then I went to, fairly soon after that, went to a conservative Bible college, Ridley, Melbourne, where, 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 I, where the main thing was learning the Bible. You just need to know the Bible. And some, some lecturers were more overt, like you don't need that other stuff because you've got the Bible. Others were a little more agnostic. I can't remember anyone being 
like you should really pursue vigorously the spiritual gifts and be exercising those as well as reading your Bible. Just that wasn't the message coming through. And so I became less and less sensitive to things of the Spirit, ended up getting ordained and working at a church for four years before I came here, which was very, very, very conservative. Part of it was just personality. Like everyone at that church was a massive introvert. There was like one guy that wasn't, and he was weird, right? So, so part of it's just psychology, I'm sure. But then, again, it's this, this idea that to, in order to be safe, we need to just make sure we keep reading the Bible. And, and, and I, I do believe it's driven by a fear of things getting out of control. We just, if we stay here, we'll be safe. This is safe harbor. To go into all those spiritual things is to go out into the ocean and to be thrown from wave to wave. And, and it's no, no surprise then that the, the spirit is actually referred by Jesus as, as the wind. In fact, the word spirit means wind or breath. He's wild. He's out of control. You, can't, you don't know what he's going to do next. And so I feel like I've had this sort of patchwork experience of things of the spirit. And, and so I come to this I hope as much as you do, just wanting to, to, wanting to know what's right, wanting to be informed by the scriptures, wanting all of my experience to fall away and just, just to be centered and calibrated according to God's word. That's my big idea when it comes to this. And by God's grace, I think that's what we're going to experience. The first thing I want to do, and really the first three weeks of this 10 weeks, what I want us to do is just establish a solid grounding. We're going to get into controversy about the debate between continuationists and, and cessationists. And if you don't understand those words, don't worry about it. We'll get to that later. But getting to some of these theological debates that have been going on through the years. And we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of what is prophecy? What is speaking in tongues? What is healing? What is miracles? What are words of knowledge? Like, we're going to get into all of these things in depth. But first, I just want, I want us to get a bit of grounding. I don't want us to lose anyone, and I don't want us to lose our footing in the Scriptures. So today, I want to talk about the church in Corinth. Obviously, the church that Paul was writing to when he gave this thorough exposition of what spiritual gifts are. I want to talk a little bit about the context of their church. Where are they coming from? We say over and over again here, context is critical. If you want to understand the Bible, context is critical. If you want to understand Shakespeare, context is critical. Right? So, so we're going to do that. And then Next week, I want to talk a little bit about our own church perspective on these things, right? We're going to see there's controversy, there's debates. Where's our church kind of coming from? And where we're coming from is pretty unusual, an unlikely position, a convergence of like three different strands or three different traditions coming together that I think is biblical, other people think is crazy, and so we're going to talk about that next week. And then the following week, we'll just talk about sort of gifts 101, what are spiritual gifts? In essence, when you boil it down, and we'll look at a couple, couple gifts in the third week as well. But what I want to do is get a, a good foundation. This last week when I was away, I had two weeks off, and uh, the last few days I went away on my own. My wife is incredibly generous, and she often says to me, you just need to go off by yourself, which is true. 
I need that quite a bit. I, I, I need just complete solitude sometimes. And so I like to go off into the mountains somewhere and fish. And the way I was taught to fish by this old Scotsman is, is like 90% hiking and occasional wetting of the line. And so it's just like lots of hiking in the wilderness and appreciating God's creation and catching a few fish as you go along. And it was, it was awesome. But there was one day where I just like, I, I decided that for, I would do this 40-hour fast while I was doing the fishing thing. And it might make me more keen to catch a fish and probably just to kind of eat it raw and flapping out. Not really, but I did. So, but I was getting to the end of this 40-hour fast. I think it was about 30, the 38th hour. And I, I really was struggling to keep it together at this point. I'd hiked all day and, um, and I was just kind of running low on everything. And if you've ever done like a long fast, you'll know that towards the end, your brain starts to do strange things. Like it's best if you can finish a fast while you're sleeping um, so that you can have crazy dreams with your eyes closed, right, rather than with them open. And so I just started to lose it a little bit. And started to think I could do things that I couldn't really do. Some of you dream about flying. I was dreaming about being able to scale these, um, these mountain faces. But there was this, like, big... The, the river had cut away this huge, like, deep canyon, and I thought it would be a good idea if I could scale, like, the side of that rock wall, and, um, and then I'll get to the place where no one, no one goes fishing. So obviously, if you get to the place where no one goes to fishing, you're going to catch lots of fish, right? Just makes sense. Made sense. Anyway, I did that bit. That was actually the easy bit. The hard bit came when I got to the bottom. And uh, if you can imagine, just like I'm standing on a stage here, that, that, that little wooden bit there is like really lush, beautiful green grass. And so naturally, as I was walking out on the ledge, I walked from this kind of rock onto the green grass and just went straight through because there was no ground under the grass. It was just growing out over this... And I went plunging straight into this deep, freezing, cold water. Why have I just told you a 15-minute story about that? Oh, that's right. Foundations. Foundations. Unless we get into the context, unless we understand the, the, what, what this, this book is built on, then we risk going straight over the edge and plunging into water. I think most people who have either experienced people going, doing crazy things with spiritual gifts or people who have done that themselves, very often it is a result of failing to first establish some strong foundations. You just walk straight through and into the raging torrent. So if you've got your Bible open, then, then please do turn to 1 Corinthians. And we're going to move about today, okay? Because what I want to do is really try to establish, the, as I say, the context for the Corinthian church and also look at really only a few of the many, many, many things that they were doing really badly. The church in Corinth is a mess, it's an absolute catastrophe. The reason that Paul wrote two letters to the church is because they were writing letters to him, asking him questions that just made him go, what is going on there? Why are you asking me this? This church is a mess. 
So you heard Jimmy read for you the, the passage from Acts 18. That's the, the kind of Luke's history of how the church came about. Paul comes into Corinth and establishes a church over 18 months, working with his friends Priscilla and Aquila. Um, both, all three of them were tent makers. They had that in common. They would do that kind of work. And then Paul would go into the synagogues and, and he would preach there. And then later, Timothy and uh, another guy came along and Paul sort of devoted himself wholly to preaching, particularly to the Gentiles in that area. And, and so what you need to understand about Corinth is that it's, in, in the first century, it's this hub of activity. It's like... Um, It's a very cosmopolitan, pluralistic, very spiritual, very multicultural place. And uh, I've got a little map here for you of of Corinth in the first century. And so if you see where Athens is in in Greece, then there's this, what's called an isthmus, um, is that that little sliver of land between two seas. And Corinth is perched right on the edge of that. So that meant, remember, in, in the first century, if you're a port town, you're a big town. If you're a port town, you're a wealthy town. If you're a port town, you have lots of different influences coming in. And Corinth was under Roman rule. It was part of, essentially part of Greece, but it had a lot of influence coming in from Asia as well and from the Orient. So it had port, it had, um, port traffic coming in on both sides of the isthmus, coming in on both seas. They actually had a road where they could pull smaller ships across the isthmus so that they didn't have to go all the way around Achaia. Um, and, and, and the city itself was actually a lot like Melbourne, very cosmopolitan, very progressive, very pluralist. There are lots of different religions, lots of different gods, lots of different perspectives, and it, it all kind of forms this melting pot in Corinth. They also have this thing about, they have this kind of obsession with sexuality. And so again, like Melbourne, they were like us. They, they had this infatuation with sex and with, um, um, and with fertility. And so one of the great uh, ancient wonders of, the, of the, uh, the, the, the wonders of the ancient world, you had the temple of Aphrodite, or Artemis, depending whether you're Greek or Roman, but Aphrodite, you know, it's where we get the, the term aphrodisiac. She was the, the goddess of sex. And, and in that temple, according to early historians, in that temple there are a thousand prostitute press, uh, priestesses working in the temple. So your, your priests in that culture were prostitutes. Um, and a thousand of them working in this temple doing their thing. And this was part of their culture. They just had this obsession with sexuality, not unlike what we have today. It has this obsession with sexuality, and, and it was the same in Corinth in the first century because they had all these ports and all, all this trade coming through. It was also a very wealthy town. But like Melbourne today and like much of the Western world, there were the very, very, very wealthy and then there were the very, very, very poor and there was this divide that was unbreachable. If you were really wealthy, you were of a completely distinct class to those who were poor. And obviously when you start establishing a church and because Christianity draws people from all different socio-political, socio-economic backgrounds, you have this clash of cultures and we're going to get to a little bit of that and, and, and how that manifested itself a little bit later on. In the first century, first century, and actually you'll hear some even secular people using the term today, that the word Corinthian was a byword for sexually promiscuous. 
or crazy or, or, you know, wild party people. They were Corinthians. Even if you weren't from Corinth, if you were that way inclined, there were the, you know what she's like? She's a Corinthian, right? So it's a byword for sexual promiscuity and, and, and licentiousness and progressive kind of perspective. So you can see why, even though the church was planted over 18 months by the greatest missionary who's ever lived, by the greatest theologian who's ever lived, it didn't take long after he moved on to Ephesus, it didn't take long for that church to start experiencing trouble. And the, and the main reason was that they were Corinthians. They were Corinthians who had become Christians, but as everyone knows from experience, that doesn't fix it overnight. So I got this quote from Gordon Fee, who's a New Testament scholar. He said, although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them, emerging a number of attitudes and behaviours that required radical surgery without killing the patient. That's Paul's motivation in writing these letters. He knows that that church needs radical surgery, but he doesn't want to kill it. He doesn't just want to say, well, you guys are all going to hell, so screw you, I'm in Ephesus now, we've moved on. He wants to save it. He knows that God is doing a beautiful thing, but he also knows that they are really broken. And so he writes to them to try and address some of these things, address these things that are going on. And so I love how he begins this letter. This is a real lesson for us. I hope we hope we take this away this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 9, knowing all that you know about what a Corinthian is and about the kind of church that this has become, this is how he addresses them. Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God. Hmm. To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on. He will strengthen. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You are called by him into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's got this beautiful, optimistic vision of the church in Corinth, even though he knows the stuff that's going on. The stuff that's going on that we're going to get to is terrible. They're doing terrible things. They're a terrible church. They're an absolute mess. It's chaos. And yet he still addresses them as God's children, saved by grace, kept by grace. I think that's a good lesson for us. Whenever we think about our church and the mess that our church is, the mess that your leaders are, all the ways that the church disappoints you and lets you down, all the ways that our church falls into sin and brokenness, 
It's not as if Paul was ignoring those things. He spends the rest of the book addressing them. But he wants them to know, first and foremost, before anything else, your identity is in Christ. And so it's not either error of either saying, God hates you, so go and burn, or God doesn't care, so go and sin. He says, you are God's children. Now become what you are. You are God's children. Now become what you are. So let's let's look at let's look at the trouble with Corinth, all right? And 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 we're aware that um, there is a temptation, whether you're looking at the problems in Corinth or the problems in Red Door or the problems in that church down there that we all hate, right? Whenever we whenever we look at these things, it's so tempting for us just to think about the trouble out there. Even if we're talking about our church, you can say, well, that's the, that group of people, they're like that, and I'm not. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like that guy. We need to resist that temptation. The only purpose, really, of going through these issues, apart from understanding the context that Paul's writing in, is so that God, by his Spirit, might actually convict us of where we might be falling into some of these traps or where we're in danger of stepping through the grass and into the raging river below. So this is not an exhaustive list. I'm going to go through six things. There's 66 things. I just made that number up, but it's probably about that many that you could go through in depth issues, deep-seated problems in the church in Corinth. This is not exhaustive. This is... Kind of just a little introduction into them. If you read through the book, you'll see many more. So we start with the first one. The first issue is the issue of division. So in verse 10 to 13, he says this. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of, members of Chloe's people. First of all, throwing Chloe under the bus there, really, to be honest. Um, but anyway, um, but for it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by the members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised into Paul's name, he says? He says there's rivalry among you. You, you, you. you can't help it. Rather than being united, you're pitting yourselves against each other. This is like a game to you. You need to be on the winning team. You need to be seen as being more aligned with the stronger figure. It's, you see this over and over again through church history. What's the quickest way for a good church to become a dead church? It's when the church gathers around a cult of personality, a leader, a preacher, a a gifted person, 
rather than around Jesus. He says, is, was Paul crucified for you? Am I that big of a deal? Were you baptized into Paul's name? I don't remember that. Apollos, as this great gifted speaker, much stronger in preaching than Paul ever was. Cephas, that's Peter, as the rock, the, the chief leader of the church. It's like all of these guys are nothing. Christ isn't divided. I think this is why it's so important for us to adhere to our, our, our espoused mission, which is to make all of life all about Jesus, not all of life all about Red Door, or even about good things like all of life all about community or family or, I don't know, justice. Certainly not all of life all about our leaders or our preacher or, you know, some kind of cult of personality. God forbid that we ever define ourselves by morons like the ones speaking to you. It's all about Jesus. All of life is all about Jesus, and that is our best safeguard against doing what they were doing, dividing over who was greater. Andrew Wilson, in his great book um, called Spirit and Sacrament, uh, which has just come out and I've used a lot in, in thinking about this topic, he says, the Corinthians have worked their way through the entire body of Christian doctrine and practice. Uh, praxis just means doctrine applied in practice, all right? So not just the head stuff, but the hand stuff, and made a pig's ear of all of it. There is division, not unity, about virtually everything. Leadership, baptism, marriage, idol food, spiritual gifts, eschatology. That's the, the, your idea of the end times, right? When's Jesus coming? What's it going to look like? That kind of, right? Division in all of that stuff. Corporate gatherings are a weekly debacle and do more harm than good. License flaunting dress codes, drunkenness at the Lord's Supper, self-indulgent spirituality, total chaos. That's who we're dealing with. That's who Paul was writing to. So you've got division. Then you've got a big one, as I've already addressed, this idea of sexual immorality and just how deeply ingrained it was in the Corinthian culture. So this comes out over and over again through 1 and 2 Corinthians. But in chapter 6, he says this to them. He says, don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? Think about that. Your bodies are part of Christ's body. So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. By no means. He goes on. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee, flee, flee. Run away from sexual immorality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Strong words of rebuke to people who came from a culture who saw that sex is just sex. It doesn't mean anything. What does our culture say about sex? Sex is just sex. It doesn't mean anything. We think we're so advanced and progressive. This has been happening for thousands of years. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Glorify God with your body. This idea that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit is used by a lot of people like, I'm a vegan because my body is a temple, right? You can, t- you can get into whether veganism is more Christian than eating meat. I'm not convinced. Um, but people use this verse for, oh, this is why I don't smoke. This is why I don't drink. This is why I exercise. All those things might be true, but this is this, the context. This is about sex. So if you want to go to the temple, the temple of the Spirit thing, my body is a temple of the Spirit, you want to mainly be thinking about How pure am I in my sexuality? Because my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, because my body is a member of Christ's body, therefore I will not allow a part of Christ's body to engage in anything that would sully it, that it would would ensnare it, that would fuse it with something less than holy. The question for us, I guess, is to what degree is the culture around us dictating how we do life together? Dictating how we view the world and our relationship with the world? Like for the Corinthians, this obviously was something in their background, part of their culture, something they were surrounded by that they kind of had spliced into Christianity, glued it onto the side and thought, yeah, that, that'll, that just, that'll be fine. The question is, how are we doing that? If it's right that our culture of sexuality is very like theirs, then it makes sense that our danger would be the same as theirs. To what degree are we just looking at the world around us and saying, well, everyone else is doing it? It's not just sexuality, that that's an easy one to talk about. What about greed, materialism, riches? We need to do an audit. We need to do a regular audit of what we are participating in and figure out, is this the culture dictating what I do, or is this the gospel dictating what I do? There's division, there's sexual immorality, there's a very uh, niche one 
abuses at the Lord's Supper. These people have a weird understanding of communion. I know, I know if you're from a non-Anglican background, you could come and say, they've got a really weird way of doing communion. There's a lot of prayers and there's psalms and there's people saying stuff and there's, there's weird stuff on the table and there's a cloth, right? That, it might seem weird to you. It's not as weird as what these guys are doing. What these guys are doing is not just weird, but evil, Paul says. So I won't get into all of it, but just in, in, if you want to read about it, you go to 1 Corinthians 11, and um, this is right before the, the three chapters that we're looking at. And, and as those three chapters are the most extensive teaching on spiritual gifts, this chapter is the most extensive teaching on the Lord's Supper. And, and what he says to them is, is when you come together, it's not, the, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. You thought you were coming together for communion? No. What you're doing is something completely different. When you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. You guys have completely lost the plot. Presumably, when Paul plants the church for the first 18 months, they're having communion the right way. As soon as he leaves, they're like, well, let's experiment a little bit. I went to a church growing up where they had a youth service, and one week we had cornflakes and Pepsi. We're like, we're just experimenting with the Lord's Supper. These people are going, like, that was frivolous. This is evil. Again, you've got this dynamic in the church drawing from all parts of society. Some people are rich enough that they can get drunk. Other people are poor enough that they have nothing to eat. And he's like, you call that communion? So there's probably two things going on here. There's this licentiousness. You know, they're taking license. They do it with sexuality, sleeping with prostitutes, it'll be fine. They do it with drunkenness. I mean, most of us, who get drunk, do it at home. And then when we come to church, we're like, this is all the wine I'm having this week, right? <laughs> at least we hide it away. It's completely hypocritical and just as sinful, but these people are like, we're coming to church to get hammered. And, and they thought that was fine. So there's the drunkenness, the licentiousness part, but the, the thing that seems to really irk Paul the most is this lack of love it's like do you despise the church that much do you hate the church enough that you'll go ahead and just grab all that you've got and leave other people to have nothing and I said it was evil I really mean it Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 11 to say because of these abuses because you take something sacred a sacrament like the Lord's Supper and use it for drunkenness and use it for partiality. Because of that, some of you are sick and some of you are dead. I didn't say it. He, he said it. He said, some people in this church are sick because you've been abusing the Lord's Supper. Some, some of you are dead. God has killed you 
And I think what's going on there is that God is saving people by killing them. He can see that on the trajectory that they're on, and he's like, I'm going to take this guy down before he goes all the way to hell, right? Saving them from themselves. We can chat more about that. But I think that's what's going on. These abuses are so serious that they have real-time consequences. All right, we've got to keep moving. We've got division, we've got sexual immorality, we've got communion abuses, we've got gospel drift. And this is something that our church can resonate with. It's something that every church is in danger of all the time. Doesn't matter if you are like, we're staying in the harbour, we're staying safe, we're going to be as conservative as possible. Conservative churches are just as likely to die in a couple of generations as any other church. Because in every church there is this kind of inextricable, irrevocable gospel drift. This tendency to take what is the most important thing and put it to the side. So yeah, we believe the gospel, but this church exists to do social justice. Yeah, or yeah, we believe the gospel, but this church exists to preach verse by verse through the Bible. Now you can do preaching verse by verse through the Bible and leave the gospel way behind you. No one is safe is the point. And the Corinthians were no different. Paul was there for 18 months. He's moved on. And all of a sudden, they're starting to drift. The main thing is no longer the main thing. Actually, the main thing for them was probably this whole idea of spiritual gifts. That became more important than the gospel, more important than loving one another. So Paul reminds them in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4, he, he sees this drift going on and he says, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if... You hold to the message I preach to you unless you believed in vain. There's a lot of qualifications on that. Yes, you received the gospel. Yes, you're standing on the gospel. But unless you hold to the gospel, then you have believed in vain. You may as well never have believed in the first place. For I passed on to you as most important. What's the most important thing that we should know as Christians? What's the, the center of all that we know and believe? What needs to stay fixed in, in the middle of the orbit of all of our ministries and visions and desires? I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, According to the scriptures, he said, this gospel, this simple old, old story, you need to hold fast to that. You need to make sure it's at the center of everything you do. And you need to know, if I can expand, you need to know that it's going to be a constant battle to keep that in the middle. Me and my kids go to this lake, um, this park just down by the lake, and there's one of those spinny things 
in the park where the kid has to hold on and stand on a disc and then the irresponsible dad tries to wrench it as hard as he can to spin them as hard as he can and then the ultimate for the irresponsible dad is where the kid is going so fast that they just can't hold it anymore and they go flying off into the dirt, right? And I'm saying that's what church is like. Holding on to that thing of central importance while everything's spinning like crazy is of absolute necessity if we're going to be the kind of church that God wants us to be. And the forces, the G-forces that are trying to shake us off that thing of, of utmost importance are strong. And so as we come into a controversial topic like this and we come into something that has caused people to stumble over the years, then we need to know we're going to have to hold on tight to the gospel. I had no idea that I'm about... Uh, I'm just way over time. Um, this happens to me a lot. It always surprises me. All right, just, just let me, let me uh, do an abridged version for you of, of the last bit here. So t- two things that the, that the church struggled with that are particularly pertinent for our study over the next nine weeks, all right? So the, tr- trying to kind of land this plane now in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, and we'll camp there for the, for, for the next couple of months. So first of all, um, this idea that the Corinthians had that there are Christians and then there are super spiritual super Christians. Uh, it's, it's like a, a Marvel movie, right? There's, there's civilians that, that yeah, they're, they're Christians, I guess. They've got the gospel thing, but then the rest of us are super spiritual super Christians, and, and we wear capes and they had this idea firmly kind of in their minds and it was all about how do you get from regular Christian to super spiritual super Christian what do we need to do in order to make that happen so in 1 Corinthians 12 and this is where we're going to be 12 to 14 and and this is uh, verses 12 to 18. Paul says, and, and he really wants to just, he, he wants to completely destroy that idea that there are different categories, different classes of Christians depending on what gifts they have. So he says, just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ, right? He says, We are all baptized by the one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. So this isn't about cultural or socioeconomic backgrounds. We are all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a a hand, I don't belong to the body, uh, it is not for that reason any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. So he says, yes, there are many different parts to this body, the church. And yes, they look different and they function different. They have different gifts and different strengths, but that doesn't make them any less part of the body. He says all of us are in the same boat. 
There is no professional religious person that stands up the front and yells at you who's more gifted than anyone else. It's not according to socioeconomic background. It's not according to cultural background. It's not according to your level of giftedness or the kinds of gifts that you have. Put this idea of super spiritual, super Christians to death. And I'll keep moving. The last one they, they were struggling with, and keep these two things in mind, super spiritual, super Christian, and this idea that giftedness is more important than love. Or to put it another way, an alliterative way, um, competency is more important than character. What you do is more important than who you are. What you do is more important than how you treat others. They had this running through the church. And so Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 13, and everyone in Carolyn Springs knows this verse, if I speak in human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And I won't read on because I'm out of time. But this, this passage that everyone's heard at every wedding they've ever been to isn't about marriage. It's about love, and so it applies to marriage, but it's mainly about spiritual gifts. Paul is talking about spiritual gifts, and he says you can have all of them. You can be the most super spiritual super Christian. You can be the Thor of Christianity, and if you don't have love, you're nothing. And if your ministry exercise is exercised with all giftedness but without love, then it's not just less than good, it is evil. It is irritable, uh, irritating. It is a clanging symbol. And what Paul wants to see is a symphony of giftedness being expressed through the church in love. So here's the point. The Corinthian church was a mess. Paul's response to seeing that mess is to remind them who and whose they are. You are God's children. Now become what you are. And see, the Corinthian church was absolutely obsessed, infatuated with spiritual experience and giftedness and, 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 and ecstatic experiences and, 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 and you know, all of these supercharged, charismatic stuff. They're obsessed with that stuff. And, and here's something very telling, especially if you're coming from a perspective where you want to put these things to the side. Like you've seen these things go bad and all we need to do is just sit down and read the Bible and we'll be safe. Here's the, here's the thing I want to leave you with. Paul knows all of this about this church. He knows they're all obsessed with super spiritual, super Christian, super gifted, speaking in tongues, prophecy, healing, miracles. He knows all of that, and he doesn't say, put those things aside. He doesn't say, just sit and read your Bible. He doesn't say, tone it down. In fact, he says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. He takes the charismaniacs in Corinth and says, you're not desiring these things enough. And then he gives them three chapters 
of God's will and God's ways so that their desire of and exercise of these gifts can be shaped according to God's will and God's ways. And that's why it's vital that we take these three chapters of Scripture and as we eagerly desire spiritual gifts and do a bit of an experimentation and, and try and get into these things, we pray that God, by his spirit, through his word, would be shaping us so that we can minister effectively in the spirit according to his will. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Um, thank you for these couple of months we have to go through this controversial but essential topic. I pray that, as we just said, that, that as we dive into these things and, and as we eagerly desire these things, and, and Lord, by your grace, as you lead us into these things, that you would also shape us, shape our understanding, shape our, both our, our head, our heart, our hands. We want to be your people. We are your people. Please help us to become who and what we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.